Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was booted! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. In today's Vault episode for you, because it is Saturday, we have a classic episode. This is Play the Record Backwards Part 1. It originally published 11-29-2022. This is one that I did with the former producer Seth Nicholas Johnson uh, back during Joe's parental leave. So I hope you enjoy Part 1 of this series. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Seth Nicholas Johnson. Seth is, of course, the producer of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but he also co-hosts the music podcast, Rusty Needle's Record Club. Today's episode is going to be something of a crossover episode because we're going to be talking about stuff to blow your mind type stuff, but this one is going to veer directly into vinyl record territory for, I think, a large a large portion of the episode. And especially when we get into that area, I'm, I'm really going to have to defer to you, Seth, uh, being the master of records that you are and with myself being someone who was... Uh, told from an early age not to touch records yes and being an obedient child i obeyed everyone on that and i have virtually not touched any vinyl my entire life because that's what grown-ups are supposed to do you know it's not uh, actually a bad rule to make for children because you know they are very delicate and um i not not only um do i manufacture vinyl on my own which is uh, has taught me a lot about it but also um i run a record label so i've had it pressed at, at vinyl factories and and i'm a big vinyl collector on my own and even me I'm, I'm i'm very familiar with what you should and shouldn't touch basically only touch the rim and the label never touch the grooves even mm. i just because i'm a human being i'll be clumsy and drop something it'll like scratch against an edge and like well that's ruined forever <laughs> you know so <laughs> i can't imagine entrusting that to a child you know uh that's why children's records are always just scratched into oblivion so so you know i i, I understand and i also understand why even adults have um are hesitant to to uh, to jump into that world but i also see the attraction of it obviously i mean on, on weird house cinema episodes are always pointing out which movies score has been re-released in some sort of strange um, ultra rare vinyl release and mm -hmm. and it's often beautiful for just from a packaging standpoint but also when you get down to the the details of the the record pressing like i see the appeal of it so it's not for for lack of of occasionally thinking, hey, I could I could start getting into vinyl, but uh, but yeah, just fr from an early age, I was I was told shouldn't touch that, and I agreed. I mean, it's it's wonderful for forcing yourself to be actually involved in what you're consuming musically. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's my favorite part about vinyl. Sure, the sound quality is better. There's there's no getting around that. It is better. But uh, in addition to that, I love that I need to put the record 
on the little turntable. I need to turn mm-hmm. on my stereo. Got to put the, the needle in the groove. I need to wait 15 to 30 minutes, flip it over, put put it back on the other side. You know, like like I have an active interest in what I'm listening to and therefore it makes me appreciate it more. It's just like eating sunflower seeds, you know, cracking mm-hmm. open the shells is half the fun, you know? Okay, yeah, so you get that tactile experience with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not just a, a passive series of zeros and ones being pre-chosen by an algorithm. I chose this record. I'm putting it on. I'm making these noises happen in my own small contribution way. So in this episode, we're going to be talking in general about things hidden in music. Uh, you might think of them as Easter eggs uh, or any other number of, of terms you might use, hidden messages if you'd rather. And we'll also be talking about accusations and panics associated with some of these techniques, the psychology involved, and specific examples from music history. Uh, and as we explain these various record-based techniques, I will give some real-world examples of them uh, that you can find in your local record store and that, hey, I think you should listen to because I, I think every example I give is something that I'm like, yes, I recommend this. Go check it out. Excellent. Yeah. And some of these examples are going to come up uh, are things that were mentioned in papers I'll be uh, citing, but they're obviously ones in many cases you are very familiar with and you can perhaps give a little more background on. Right. All right. So the first stop is going to take us back before musical recording was possible, or at least to a time when the main way to record music was, uh, at least via media, was to put it on paper, was to write down the music. And even then, a certain amount of, uh, of musical encoding is possible. So we have to be reminded that music is information, so it shouldn't come as a, as a surprise that hidden information can be present in music in ways that predate analog or digital media. Not even getting into what's possible with language itself, because obviously, uh, in any given song's lyrics, in any given language, there's going to be a, enough complexity there that you can hide things, that you can, you can sort of get across points uh, subliminally, you can use metaphors. I mean, all the weapons of, of language are at your disposal if you at all know how to use them when you're crafting lyrics. And, uh, but, but beyond that, we can certainly look at examples of musical cryptograms, because basically musical symbols and musical notes can and have been used in substitution ciphers. And we've talked about um, uh, substitution ciphers on past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, When musical theorists in the West began to assign letter names to notes during, I believe, the ninth century CE, it also became possible to turn things around, Uh, though it wasn't until, I believe, the Romantic period and beyond that that this was really explored. So you might be wondering, well, okay, what, what are you talking about here? With uh, uh, Obviously, we have notes. Uh, we have, an, you know, play an A, play a, a B natural, etc. And this is where we see a great example of this. And this is one that I, I imagine a number of you are familiar with. Um, the famed Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach, who lived 1685 through 1750, would employ what we call the Bach motif. So that's a B flat, an A, a C, and then a B natural. Now, you might say, well, well that's a B-A-C-B. That, what, that's, that's meaningless. Well, in German, a B-flat is B, and a B-natural is H, thus spelling out Bach. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. Uh, maybe, maybe once you've, it's been explained, maybe a little too obvious. But, uh, but yeah, there, it's an example where he decided to, using uh, the, the system in place to, to, to label these different sounds, to then turn it around and write his own name in the music itself. And there are numerous other examples of this from other composers. You know, I've actually looked this up before because it is—it's a fun idea to communicate with mm-hmm. the sounds of notes. Uh, in fact, uh, I remember there was a um, uh, gosh, I, I believe it was a scene in the Paul Thomas Anderson film Magnolia where they're on like a game show, and these are like what these are things you'll bring to a picnic, and they'll just play notes and they'll like spell out the words. So like E G G, I'll bring an egg, that kind of thing. You know, like it's. <laughs> It's it's something you can do and it's fun. It's puzzly. It's it's good times. So I've looked this up in the past. There are approximately, especially if you include the um, H as as a part of it, around two hundred words that you can spell using just musical notes. So you know things like cabbage head. You know, like these <laughs> things. These things are possible. They're they're a part of that language. So. I think it'd be difficult, but I bet you could form a message. You could form sentences. And, and you know, we'll talk more about more examples right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you're essentially talking about 
music obsessed individuals, total music nerds in different ages, just eventually getting in there and just experimenting with what they could do, be it something that was about creating new sound, elevating the art, et cetera, or just having a laugh. And that's those, those two um, ideas seem to run throughout the history of, uh, of this kind of hidden messages in music uh, uh, activity. There are also uh, older examples of musical cryptograms, including uh, the work of Renaissance musician Joaquin de Pre, uh, lived 1455 through 1521. Uh, uh, he was a French-Flemish composer, and he composed um, a particular work. Uh, this is Missa Hercules du Ferrari. It was for the Duke of Ferrara, and the music is derived from the musical letters in the Duke's name, a musical cryptogram that was later known as the Soghetto Cavato. Another example, American occultist Paul Foster Case would create a cryptogram in the 20th century that made use of esoteric symbols and concepts. And if I understand what I was reading on it correctly, it used occult symbols, Hebrew and Latin, to translate a word into notes, though the usage here would be more ceremonial than anything. Um, but, but one of uh, one of one of several examples we'll be touching on that it that either is within the realm of the occult, or um, uh, we'll touch on examples later that are more in the area of sort of like faux occultism or uh, accusations of occultism, etc. Uh, so those are all excellent examples. But let's give our audience uh, one more that's a bit more modern, something they can they can go find a record of right now. The 1977 album "Let There Be Rock" by ACDC. They close with a song called Whole Lotta Rosie, where the primary guitar riff goes A-C-A-D-A-C-A, or Akadaka, which is ACDC's nickname in their home country of Australia. Ah, that's impressive. I had no idea about that. Huh. So Johann Sebastian Bach, also the, the members of ACDC, all, uh, all the same brain when it comes to uh, uh, coding the songs here. Yes, shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> So this is just, these are just a few brief examples to demonstrate what is and was possible even before analog and digital media becomes involved in the scenario. But at this point, let's move on to some more analog examples. So the first thing we're going to look at with actual recorded audio is something that I'm sure many, if not most of you, are familiar with at this point, either by virtue of various panics over popular music, especially satanic panic, and it's... Um, uh, reverberations through media, uh, from everything, uh, you know, from horror movies to to, uh, to supernatural television shows and so forth. Uh, but also, it impacts actual record, an actual recording practice, an actual production practice, a technique known as backmasking. So, before we get into any actual examples of backmasking or allegations of backmasking, and this is where it gets it gets very weird because it seems like. Uh, on the surface, you would think, well, either you're doing it or you're not doing it. Uh, and if you're doing it, surely it's it's provable, but it gets a little more ambiguous than that. So in simple terms, this is reversing audio, especially recordings of human speech, playing it backwards in a recording. In many cases, you know, um, you know it when you hear it. Basic backward speech, which is also sometimes utilized in media for like alien words or arcane spells and so forth. A lot of times it's used for creepy effects. And I think we all, we, you know it when you hear it. You can hear this, this sound effect and it's, it's people speaking backwards. Um, that's what it is. It's almost unfortunate that we're all so familiar with it at this point. Because back in the old days, before you know, before we all walked around with computers in our pockets and we all have the ability to record ourselves whenever we wanted, it, it must have truly sounded foreign, you know, to, to mm -hmm. hear audio played backwards. It must have been like, wow, what is that? I've never heard any creature make that noise before. And now when we hear it, we just go, oh, that's that's reversed audio. We know what it sounds like. You know, we know, we know the hallmarks of it. Yeah. And I guess with with actual reversed audio, there, like one of two things happens. It just sounds weird and cool and sounds like dark magic and so forth. And I think that's, especially nowadays, that's how most of us hear it. But also the brain can't help but lean into it and sometimes try and hear things in it. Uh, and that gets into a whole other area. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side of the equation, we mentioned allegations um, of, of, of backmasking, erroneous backmasking, arguments that especially... Um, 
dangerous seeming rock bands uh, of previous decades. The idea that they were actually back back masking in a way so that what sounds like just normal lyrics can be reversed and have a totally different meaning. Usually one that is satanic. Or sometimes not. There's a a great episode of The Simpsons where a joke is made (laughs) that Paul McCartney... uh, snuck in a recipe for lentil soup into maybe i'm amazed (laughs) we have to play it backwards to hear it and here's actually the really fun part over the closing credits of that episode of the simpsons they do play Mm -hmm. maybe i'm amazed this is actually a famous episode this is the one where lisa becomes a vegetarian it's this episode oh that's a great episode yeah and um so uh in that episode, they do play Maybe I'm Amazed over the closing credits. And if you actually record the closing credits audio and reverse it, they really did insert a recipe ah. for lentil soup into that song. It's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> Not in the real song. Only in the Simpsons episode. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that this practice goes back pretty much as as, as long as we've had the ability to record and playback speech. In fact, I was reading, you know, there's a book uh, titled uh, Language Myths, Mysteries, and Magic from 2014. And there's an article in there on backmasking by Karen Stolznow. And uh, the author points out that this actually goes all the way back to Thomas Edison around 1877, as the noted American inventor and businessman would would experiment with playing music uh, backwards, I think notably a a whistled version of Yankee Doodle Dandy. and this would have been used uh, via um, tinfoil phonograph recordings. He observed that music, quote, is still melodious in many cases, and some of the strains are sweet and novel, but altogether different from the song reproduced in the right way. And uh, it, I think we're, I think this is a realization that certainly someone like Thomas Edison was in a position to uh, acknowledge and admire back then. And then there's kind of been a wave of it throughout uh, audio history. And certainly nowadays, uh, I'd never really looked at this before, but if you go on like YouTube, you'll find so many examples of people taking music and reversing like whole albums Mm -hmm. just to play it backwards and see what happens. Uh, Sometimes they have a specific thing they're going for. Maybe they're after something in the lyrics or it's one of the cases that we'll be touching on later on in this episode. But other times, especially with... Uh, uh, I saw with a number of uh, like ambient um, uh, uh, albums, people just want to experience the album they love both both uh, forwards and backwards. I've got another little recommendation to throw in here. Okay, so uh, there is a wonderful musician, and his name uh, his real name is Dave Portner, but he goes by Avi Tear. Avi Tear is uh, most famously from the band Animal Collective, but he has a wonderful hmm. solo career as well. Uh, there was a time when he was married to uh, one of the members of the band Moom, and her name was Kriya Brecken. Okay, so they released while they were married uh, a, a collaborative album together called uh, "Pull Hair Rabbi." All right, now um, when this album first leaked back in the days when like leaking was a big issue. Uh, folks would listen to it and they were like oh this is a bad leak it sounds like the entire album is played backwards oh someone let me know when you get a real version of the leak well <laughs> av Terre himself came onto these boards and was like you no no that's that's the real version when he and his wife had finished recording their album they decided you know the entire album sounds better if you play it backwards so what became <laughs> a pretty straightforward folk album became a pretty foreign sounding backwards album and it's it's wonderful. It's called Pull Hair Rabbi. I highly recommend it. And um, it it sounds almost instrumental. It sounds very foreign and it sounds very strange because once they did reverse it initially and they decided, yes, this whole album just will be backwards versions of every single song, then they did start leaning into that. They, they made special decisions that really highlighted those choices. And, and it worked out really well. Genuinely, it's a wonderful album. I think people should listen to it. On a very, I guess, kind of simple level, it reminds me a lot of what's going on with uh, AI and creativity nowadays, mm-hmm. be it with text or visuals, where you have a, a level of human uh, creativity that's going into the machine. It's getting spat out in some form. And then there's going to be a certain amount of tweaking, either after tweaking to the resulting material or then going back and saying, like, okay, now I see what the technology does to what I started with. What can I do to optimally um, change the results and make it even more in line with what I'm trying to create? 
I, I think this has been something um, that's an element of creativity that people have used forever, which is just taking some of the decisions out of the hands of the creator to help influence something else, whether it be like those, mm-hmm. um, you know, those like cut up practices where you're trying yeah, to write yeah. lyrics. So you write little words, put them in a hat and pull them out one by one. Or, um, you know, those uh, famous Brian Eno cards where there's like different like um, prompts written on each card that you pull out and that's supposed to help you with your production process. Like, you know, uh, th- th- there's, there's lots of examples of this. And yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I think AI and intentional reversing just takes a few of those decisions out of the hands of the artist. Now, Stalls now also shares an exa- another example from Edison. Edison and his colleagues were apparently also fond of taking recordings of someone saying mad dog and playing it backwards so that it sounded like God damn. And this was this was not any kind of early uh, satanic uh, record recording. This was apparently just pure novelty. They just observed that this was the case and found it amusing. Yeah. <laughs> but it touches on something that we'll, we'll keep coming back to, the idea that sometimes when you take uh, spoken language and you reverse it, it can sound like other words in that language. Um, and... Yeah, and then there's a lot of psychological layering to put on top of that, but we'll get to that. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, eventually, reel-to-reel tapes came along. This would have been the 1930s, and it became increasingly easy for audio lovers to experiment with the medium. So, for instance, French composer Pierre Schaeffer, who lived 1910 through 1995, experimented with tape looping, sampling, and backmasking. And the use of backmasking would then increase among avant-garde musicians during the 1950s, according to Stosnow. And, and certainly, I think a lot of you out there can, can think of various um, recording artists who use some of these tools, tape loops especially. There are a lot of uh, you know, ambient um, uh, recording artists that I can think of that, that make use of this. Uh, but it, you know, it comes down to just manipulating the recorded data at heart. Now, in the history of backmasking, it's impossible to talk about all this without touching on the Beatles. And it's, it's not just because although the Beatles are, uh, are, are popular and, uh, and are uh, an easy uh, band to source for all this. Like they, they, were, uh, they really were the ones that are credited with sort of bringing backmasking into the mainstream, both for, uh, for good and kind of also for, uh, for bad, for the, you know, leaning into the, the whole panic uh, area. So... Um, uh, to, to be clear, though, all major and serious accounts, uh, which which Stalls now discusses uh, in their paper, seem to to uh, to, to uh, drive home that the Beatles engaged in backmasking purely for novelty's sake. Um, this entails, large, I think, the main examples here: three tracks off of the legendary 1966 album Revolver. That would be "I'm Only Sleeping," "Tomorrow Never Knows," but then also the single "Rain," which wasn't on that album but came out of the same recordings. So the, specifically on these, I'm only sleeping, you have a back-masked lead guitar part by George Harrison. So George Harrison played it one way. When they were tinkering around and figuring out uh, you know, how they were putting all this together, they said, hey, we like it better in reverse. Let's use it that way. It helps create this kind of dreamlike, uh, you know, psychedelic sound. Yeah, I'm sure just novelty, variety, and, and probably just purely aesthetics is just what dictated these decisions for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and sure, maybe, maybe part of it was like, hey, it'll be funny if people try to reverse these things because they sound backwards. But I bet that wasn't really the primary thought. I'm sure aesthetics were the first and foremost decision maker there. Yeah, I, I've seen it mentioned that the John Lennon and producer George Martin both kind of took credit for the discovery, but both in in kind of casual ways. Like I think George Martin was more along it was more along the lines of like, yeah, we were experimenting and this sounded good, and John Lennon was more uh, more likely to say, well, I was really high at the time, and I kind of d- discovered it. Uh, either way, though, yeah, tomorrow never knows. Uh, also has backwards guitar on it, and then rain stands out a little bit because it features backward vocals. So these are popular and I guess somewhat obvious examples of backmasking in the biggest band in the world. And so, of course, this leads to greater scrutiny, greater awareness of the technique. Um, and this is going to mean that, that later on people are looking at subsequent Beatles albums and saying, well, I wonder what's what's forwards, what back, what's backwards. Are they using this again? Um, and, uh, this ends up, uh, this ends up leading to, uh, a, a lot of speculation from some uh, of the more, I guess, you know, conspiracy minded fans about what may be hidden in subsequent albums. Though Stahls now writes in, in their paper, quote, there were no hidden messages until the fans and fanatics went looking for them. And so from here, we begin to veer into the, this area of, of, accusations of backmasking and getting into urban legends about songs like Revolution 9 off of 1968's The White Album. If um, This is something I wasn't super familiar with, uh, but there's a voice saying number nine, number nine, number nine. And the legend goes that if you, if you reverse that, you hear, turn me on dead man, and uh, you can you can find examples of this on I think just the Wikipedia page for uh, the White Album or for Revolution Number no. Nine, and you can hear it. I was listening to it just the other day, and I have to say I did not find it particularly convincing. I feel like you really have to want to hear "Turn Me On, Dead Man," <laughs> and then you get into that area where it's like, if this is the hidden message, why is the hidden message like so like clunky? Yeah, but you I think you can say that about. Um... Uh, something that I, I think you're coming to, which is all of the Paul is dead clues yep. that are out mm-hmm. there. 
uh, this was taken as one of those, as a, oh, this is just an indicator. Uh, if folks don't know, there's a, a, a long-held rumor slash conspiracy theory that is clearly very untrue, but mm-hmm. people just like to talk about it, that uh, Paul died in a car crash early on in the Beatles' career, and then he was replaced by a Paul lookalike at one point. <laughs> Um, it's obviously very untrue, but there are many examples that conspiracy theorists uh, like to talk about. Like, um, oh gosh, here, here's one, for example. If you look at uh, the cover of Abbey Road, picture it in your mind, you have the four mm-hmm. Beatles walking across the road. Uh, they're all dressed in, in kind of interesting clothing, very distinct from one another. Um, here, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think I can do this. All the way at the back, you have George Harrison, who is dressed kind of like a working man, kind of like working man's clothes, denim, nothing fancy. In front of that, you have Ringo, who's wearing like kind of a fancier suit and tie. Okay. Mm-hmm. In front of that, you have Paul, also dressed, you know, pretty casually. Uh, and, and I think he's not wearing shoes. All right. Mm-hmm. And then in front of him, you have uh, John Lennon, who is dressed all in white with long flowing hair, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the message you were supposed to receive from that is that John Lennon was God. And he was taking home the dead body of Paul McCartney. He wasn't wearing shoes because something to do with like being buried without your shoes on. It was it was something this one referenced. Uh, Ringo represented like the priest who was like burying and giving the eulogy. And George Harrison was representing the grave digger, the man actually burying Paul. And it's like. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> you know, like that's that's quite a stretch. There's a lot of other things too. Like if you hold a mirror up to the bass drum on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, it allegedly like gives you the date that Paul died. And <laughs> like if you look at like the pictures on the cover of Let It Be, uh, I think Paul's is the only one with like a red background and everyone else's is white or something like that. Like there's, there's all these little things and they're all meaningless. But, mm. but this this was another one that turned me on Dead Man. It's... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why someone could put so much, so much stock in this, but I suppose it's fun, you know, just to look for clues and, and, and hints and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember this is in the wake of, of Beatlemania, right. and we could think of it as like a heretical strain of Beatlemania that began to uh, attach itself to these various cryptic details in either the, uh, you know, the, the advanced production design of the music or the advanced record design, uh, you know, uh, uh, illustration work and graphic design on the albums. There's plenty to sort of latch onto in both of these. And um, some of one of those things, I guess you look look at a lot of conspiracy thinking. Some of this may have began for fun. It's just as an amusement, but then it can kind of take on an energy of its own. And you begin to wonder to what extent are people truly buying into this idea that Paul is dead and has been replaced by uh, a lookalike. And obviously the most rational thing you would do if you were perpetrating this kind of conspiracy was leave a lot of clues for it in your subsequent (laughs) album output. Absolutely. So anyway, Paul McCartney was not dead then. And as of this recording, still alive, actually. Mm -hmm. Now, it is worth noting that a day in the life off of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which we'll come back to uh, again in a bit, it does contain some sounds that are just for dogs, Though there, there's also the allegation that a reverse section at the end of the song can be reversed into something crude. But according to, uh, to, to Martin, uh, this is all just gibberish reverse. They just recorded a lot of gibberish and then reversed it. I mean, I mean, you can hear nearly anything in anything. Uh, I, I remember personally, I had a copy of um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Deja Vu. And mm-hmm. uh, when I was younger, I, I played the title track backwards because why not? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had a record player. Why not play it backwards? And there was a section where I swore, my little teenage brain, I swore that they said, you cannot hide, hide amongst them. Okay. <laughs> so I was hanging out at a friend of mine's house and uh, I heard her, um, her, I think it was her stepfather was in the other room playing this record out loud. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know a hidden message in this record that if you, if you play it backwards, that it says you cannot hide, hide amongst them. And she's like, oh, go tell him, go tell him. I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. <laughs> So I go up to this adult, this little teenage uh-huh. boy, and I'm like, you know, if you play this song backwards, you can hear, you can hear hidden messages. You can hear, you cannot hide, hide amongst them. And he goes, he stares at me for a while, cocks his head. He's just like, you smoke a lot of pot, do you? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm just a music lover. I love playing my records backwards. And yeah, 
didn't did I didn't get the reaction I was hoping for, which was awe and praise and a standing ovation. But oh well. Uh, this is a great time for me to ask this, though, uh, be, because I, I guess this is something that should be obvious to to people who use record players. But mm-hmm. I didn't even think about this. But every every record player gives you the ability to play both forward and backwards. Is that correct? Eh, almost, almost. Okay. Um, some of them do it deliberately. Like there are record players that I own that literally have a switch that you can go from forwards to backwards. And that's, if you have a quote unquote, like fancy record player, that button will be there. And that's that's a very useful thing to have, especially if you're trying to like cue up an exact moment in a song, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that, that that is a feature that many record players have, a literal reverse button. But uh, on the less expensive ones, and this is the way I used to do it when I was younger, you would turn off the belt that, that that drives the actual turning of the record and you would mm-hmm. but you would leave the speaker on and you would manually move your hand backwards pushing the record in reverse which mm-hmm. uh makes it sound even creepier because it's not even like you know at like a regular pace it's got like this like human lurch to it you know so um but but i also know that there are record players that just will not go in reverse no matter if you push them you'll just end up breaking them so uh yeah there, there's there's different kinds but some actually just have a button that plays it in reverse interesting well this is this is all telling because it does sound from what you're saying like just the the basic uh vinyl record scenario would sort of put the tools in the average uh music fans hands to sort of go in and investigate for themselves right uh, and uh and, and find things potentially or confirm things that they heard they might find yeah exactly yeah so again, by most accounts, backmasking by the Beatles was generally more about novelty and dumb jokes. Uh, but that doesn't mean that occult backmasking didn't take place. According to Jonathan Weinel, Daryl Griffiths, and Stuart Cunningham in 2014's Easter Eggs, Hidden Tracks and Messages in Musical Mediums, occultist um, Alistair Crowley encouraged practitioners to engage backwards thinking by listening to recordings backwards. And while I... I I think this sounds kind of silly. Uh, this notion and the the ripples of this notion certainly influence the eventual place of backtracking in Satanic Panic. Um, satanic Panic, of course, this is something that we've touched on in the show before. This was a, a moral panic, mostly in the United States and then also in, um, in, in the UK and parts of Europe during the, the 80s and 90s, though its reverberations in subsequent years and subsequent decades can be found in different parts of the world and also in different sort of communities and certainly faith communities as well. Basically, it just whips everyone into a frenzy over the idea that something that had never really existed in the world, that is the <laughs> organized worship of Satan, was in engaging in covert means of corrupting the youth of the world, as well as ritually torturing and murdering children. So, um, yeah, there's much more one could say about Satanic Panic uh, in its awfulness, uh, but and 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 also the like the real cost of it uh, to uh, to actual human beings. There's also a lot to be said into how it ends up impacting media, how it impacts music and horror and so forth. Um, but backmasking comes into play as a part of all of this as well, because you had allegations that scary metal bands, and even bands that we might not think of today as being that scary, were using backmasking to corrupt listeners with incantations of devil magic, drugs, and more. Which, this era is so baffling to me, because... I suppose if you're the kind of person that wants to believe in this organized worship of Satan that's happening right under your nose, uh, any of your neighbors could be a Satan worshiper. I suppose you're also the same kind of person that's going to believe that a backwards incantation can do something, have some effect right. in the real world. So I, I don't know, like, like I, I just hope for the practical minds of most people to go, wait, there's a backwards spell on this? Oh, well, mm-hmm. good thing spells don't work, so who cares, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it ultimately raises a bunch of ridiculous questions when you, when you start analyzing it with a logical mind. But, and then some of them, too, it just, it just made absolutely no sense, or it makes no sense to me. For example, it was alleged at one point that ACDC's Highway to Hell contained back-masked lyrics. And when asked about this, Angus Young refuted it by saying, hey, well, there's nothing subliminal about the the actual lyrics to the song. <laughs> uh, part of the lyrics are, hey, Satan, paying my dues, playing in a rocking band. Like, what? Yeah. If, like, wh- why do you need to also hide the Satanism if you're basically saying praise Satan right there in the lyrics? 
I don't get it. <laughs> and uh, there were these were, but these were real accusations with potentially real consequences for bands and record companies at the time. Uh, for instance, one accusation that picked up steam among evangelicals, especially at the time, and this is one that I imagine a lot of you have heard. And there are examples of this you can pull up on Wikipedia for the entry for this song. But Led Zeppelin's "Stairway to Heaven," classic rock song, like it's it's a song that. Uh, I think is great, but I couldn't tell you because I've heard it too many times on the radio. <laughs> so it's it's not my favorite Led Zeppelin song because I've just heard it too many times. It would not be like in the top ten for me. Mm-hmm. And it contains it does contain some actual lyrics that that go as follows: If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed. Now I'm not entirely sure what that means, but that those are just part of the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven. And the accusation is that if you play this backwards. Then you hear the words, here's to my sweet Satan, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. He'll give you, he'll give you 666. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer, sad Satan. Way too elaborate for backbasking. Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I after I read this, I listened to the example of it. And I mean, it is, it is creepy to hear because you are hearing reversed... Uh, language you are hearing uh, you are hearing something that sounds like Satan, but then on the other hand it 's so ridiculous sounding like what does this even mean like if I were to take this at face value why what is the tool shed doing for me in this scenario like nothing in this is 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 really all that creepy compared to any actual satanic lyrics or really there are there are plenty of examples in led zeppelin's lyrics that are on the face more shocking than what we have right here in the uh, alleged backmasking. i mean i mean and also i i think um certain words just when they get reversed automatically kind of sound creepy like for example i remember yoko ono got accused of this uh she had a song called kiss 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 and of mm-hmm. course when you play kiss 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 backwards it's 666 for sure and um you know, I, I yeah, I think certain words just sound easily like other words backwards. But I don't believe for a moment that this many words could sound good forwards and backwards. Not for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, also the, the the weird exercise you'd have to go through to get to this point. Um, I, I think the other important thing is like when you when you reverse uh, lyrics, when you reverse words, you're going to get other sounds. But those sounds are not going to have real context mm. until you give them context, and you and you say like, well, yeah, that that sound, that that kind of six 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 sound, it's going to sound like like six six six, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a real Laurel or Yanny situation. Yeah, yeah. I think the other telling thing about this, so first of all, it's an accusation that Robert Plant and their audio engineer at the time refuted. Um, and, in, and unlike with the Beatles, it doesn't seem like the band or those involved in producing the tracks really found this technique all that interesting. And I, I don't know, this is maybe just me, but I feel like if they had actually done this on purpose, it's one thing to cover it up during the, uh, the, the initial period of satanic panic during the, you know, certainly in the 80s and even 90s. But it seems like if this if they had actually backmasked some content here and gone to some uh, links to put some satanic silliness in here, it would have come out. Right. Like, how great are are, are the surviving members of Led Zeppelin going to really be at keeping secrets like this? <laughs> I mean, um, I think when these things happened, like another example of this that was famous at the time was the uh, supposed uh, sinking of playing Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with mm-hmm. The Wizard of Oz. And it gave you this whole experience with the two lined up perfectly. And everyone in Pink Floyd is like, how would we do that? <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, that, we were just like in a studio. Everything's analog. Like, we didn't have like, you know, no, of course not. Of, of course we couldn't have done that, you know? Yeah. Or like, can you imagine the, the reality where they're like, yes, this is actually how we make all of our albums. We, we pick a classic movie, we play it, and we just match things up with what's happening on the screen. Um, I mean, that could be somebody's artistic um, uh, technique, but um, yeah, it's just the, those connections are not made by the creator. Those connections are made by on your end when you combine two things and look for meaning between those two things which can be fun but don't believe it yeah you know yeah <laughs> like fun is fun as long as you don't believe this nonsense yeah enjoy it but don't ruin it by going too far right 
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. You write the books, Jean. I've lost her on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, I mentioned that there were potential real consequences for all this. Like, it got to the point where there were actually some lawmakers that were interested in demanding backtracking warnings on albums so that <laughs> consumers would, could be aware that there might be hidden messages. Yikes. Which is ridiculous to imagine, like, may contain hidden messages. I, I don't know. <laughs> may contain electric guitar. <laughs> and this is another thing, getting back to, I mentioned earlier, how when you have the full tools of language at your disposal, there are so many things you can do to manipulate people, to um, to hide your message, to say something kind of cheeky so that some people get it but others don't. There's plenty of stuff you can do with um, with language that hasn't been reversed, and great lyricists are going to be able to use those tools. Like pl- doing this whole backtracking technique is just such a crude and ineffective way of hiding your secret message if you actually have a secret message you want to get out there. And especially, too, if you want to keep it a secret for most people. Yeah. Like, like for example, um, oh, let's say you're uh, trying to send a secret message on a sheet of paper, and you just write each of the letters backwards. So you have to hold it up and look at it in the mirror to mm-hmm. read the message. Yeah, someone's going to figure it out. Like, now, let, let, let's say you take the first letter of each word in your lyrics, and it spells a new secret message. Hey, that's, that's going to be actually harder to decipher, you know? So it's, it's not even a very good secret message. 
Yeah. I mean, it, we mentioned Don McLean uh, recently on the show when we discussed um, The Flight of Dragons. Like, American Pie has plenty of cryptic content within it, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and that is achieved without reversing anything. Right. So uh, anyway, getting back to this idea, though, like, why, why would you need a label, right? Why would there need to be a warning saying, might contain secret messages, because if it's backwards, I can't understand it, right? Well, that's where we get into these claims, and I think these are this is mo- this has pretty much been refuted as pseudoscience at this point. But this idea that backmasked messages can be understood subconsciously, even if you're not consciously understanding them. So, one of the main proponents of the power of reverse speech is uh, an individual by the name of David John Oates. And this is a guy that's appeared on the likes of Coast to Coast. Uh, this is the you know the, the the radio station, radio show rather, that's popular and, and known for its various uh, treatment of UFOs and so forth. You know, a lot of uh, uh, what you, I guess you've described as sort of fringe ideas. And Oates would discuss this this notion that normal speech contains a smaller percentage of backward speech that. I, I'm not sure I even understand exactly what the idea here is, that maybe it kind of cuts to the chase a bit, hmm. that the thing that you're sort of trying to say through with forward-facing speech, you're also saying, at least in a simplistic form, through the reverse of the speech. There's an, an example that is sometimes uh, used to support this, and it's apparently if you take Neil Armstrong in 1969 saying, small step for man, of course, during the lunar landing, if you were to reverse that, uh, it sounds something like "man will spacewalk," and um, this one I thought sounded pretty pretty silly to me. I mean, what does that even mean? Why? What? What? What's my take home from that? If uh, if if this is some sort of meaningful content, like I, I guess it it would at best mean that the smart things that you say forward sound stupid or backwards. It doesn't make any sense. If it, if it at least like predicted the future, it'd be helpful, you know, yeah. like. Um, Oh, let's say he said small step for man, and then in reverse, it, it, it actually said like, hey, watch out for that rock over there. You're going to trip over it. Like, that mm-hmm. would be helpful. He could use that information, you know? But, <laughs> yeah. but no, this, this, is, this is nothing. This is nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so again, this has been widely refuted in scientific literature as pseudoscience. And, and one of the central arguments is that, okay, with, with Oates' work, and, and with, well, not even just Oates' work, but just in general, if you're trying to push this idea that um, that the thing that you're about to hear reversed is going to say something else, it depends heavily on priming. Mm. Uh, you're being, you're given an idea of what you were about to hear backwards. And I, I encountered that time and time again researching for this uh, episode. Like when you go to the the, the audio audio examples on the um, the Wikipedia for Stairway to Heaven, it tells you what you're about to hear, what you're going to hear straightforward and what you were expected to hear uh, in reverse. So you're going into it, to it, to it looking for that template to line up. But what's really going on is something called pareidolia. This is the tendency for humans to find meaning in something be it uh, seeing a face in the surface of the moon, secret messages in a reverse song, uh, connections between this album and this movie when this movie's played uh, on mute, that sort of thing. And it's, I mean, it's a powerful force. It's, it's, a, it's something that guides a lot of our creativity, that we can look at like a smear on the wall. We can look at a cloud in the sky and we can, we can, we can lean into a, a, a version of it that's not there. We can make, we can apply some sort of logic to it and and create fantasy. And I think that, I mean, that's, I, I feel like easily the far more sensible way of understanding any kind of sense that seems to come out of reverse speech. I'm extremely skeptical of the notion that meaningful reverse speech would simply emerge from traditional speech, um, as well as the idea that meaningful information could then be understood by our brain, on a, even on like a subliminal level. Like Mad Dog and Goddamn. Sorry to have to, to curse again, but this is the, the one of the, the historical examples. Mm-hmm. Um, these ideas are maybe not completely unconnected from each other, um, but they're also like they're, there's not really a, a strong, meaningful connection either. Like I'm not sure what the argument would be between those two words. And I'm, it, it's funny too because, and then the argument is, oh, but only in English, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> these words, let's say we say them in French instead. 
the the two words will not be the same two words forward and backwards. You won't you you won't be the same message no matter what. It's that's basically impossible. So so no, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like when people make arguments about um oh great predictions followed through like the Mayan calendar or something. It's like, yeah, but they didn't right. use like leap days like we do, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what time zone were they using? Like, like, like these things don't line up, like, like different cultures have different um, way, ways to kind of like uh, 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 parcel out our lives and they don't match up cross-culturally. So, so you can't just say something is a universal truth. It's just like, well, maybe that only works in English for me when I have the words written down. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, uh, I was looking at a couple of, of sources on this to get a little more depth in it. Uh, in 1985, J.R. Vokey and J.D. Reed suggested that some information might pass through uh, when you were uh, when you were reversing using reversed um, uh, uh, audio, but they were also very firm on the matter being misrepresented in the media. Uh, in this, uh, in, a, in 1985, in uh, one of their papers, they write, quote, Is there any evidence to warrant assertions that such, such messages affect our behavior? Across a wide variety of tasks, we were unable to find any evidence to support such a claim. Secondarily, we present evidence to suggest that the apparent presence of backward messages in popular music is a function more of active construction on the part of the perceiver than of the existence of the messages themselves. Right. Almost like a Rorschach test. Yeah, yeah. And and this, I think, is extremely telling, too. A 2001 study by uh, Kreiner, Altus, and Voss found that, quote, no priming effect was found for backwards messages, although there were significant priming for forward messages. The results are not consistent with an effect of reverse speech on word processing. And I think that's this is really key because we know that priming works with forward, with normal language, that I can say something to you and I can prime you for something. And the effects of that priming is measurable through experimentation. So if, if, if something was to come through via reversed uh, uh, audio through back masking, it, it would have an effect on priming and we would be able to measure that. And there's nothing to measure because it doesn't work. It doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, uh, there, there's still plenty of fun examples of backmasking uh, in, in music. Uh, one that, uh, that came up for me, and this is another example of a song that I've heard many times, but I did not really think about the backmasking in it because I'm just so used to hearing this technique. It's cool, but I don't give it a lot of second thought or even wonder what's being reversed. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there's a, a great Boards of Canada album, uh, Geogadi, and there's a track titled You Could Feel the Sky, and there's definitely some backmask audio in there, and it may be reverse. It seems like it's likely a reversal of a, a clip from, uh, I think, a documentary on paganism that says the god with horns. And I guess this is maybe just kind of a cheeky nod to backmasking history mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and some of the you know the the, the satanic panic ideas, which of course uh, boards of Canada would have very much been familiar with. And there are still so many examples, too, of people going into business for themselves on backmasking, playing stuff backwards, sharing it on YouTube, and saying, hey, clearly, if you play this Black Sabbath uh, uh, lyric backwards, you hear, I want to be like Jesus, stuff like that. I mean, there's if you're just going into it purely for fun, yes, there are probably some, some fun and amusing, quote-unquote, discoveries to make there. But just keep in mind that it's just as much meaning as can be applied to spilling some alphabet soup on the floor and seeing how many words are spelled out you know exactly that can be fun (laughs) but there's no meaning there i thought it was put really well in a a piece in salon written by eric davis Uh, this piece was titled what exactly lurks within the background grooves of stairway to heaven (laughs) quote soon backmasking became the satanic panic du jour giving paranoid christians technological proof that rock bands like queen kiss and sticks, and then there's an exclamation point in parentheses, did indeed play the devil's music. While most people, Christian or otherwise, found all this rather silly, these fears did reflect more pervasive fears that the media had become a subliminal master of puppets, fears that would themselves come to inspire some 1980s metal. And I think this this one might have also been the paper to point out that you also get these ridiculous uh, images and ridiculous footage of... 
uh, of of the some of the um, provocateurs of satanic panic, some of the the uh, individuals that were making these accusations, uh, messing around with record players and playing stuff backwards, and just really gazing hard and deep and trying to find evidence of Satan in the reversed audio. Hey, you know, everyone needs a hobby. I'm glad they're having fun. Good for them. How about you, Seth? Do you have any any favorite examples of backmasking in audio? Uh, yeah, yeah. I have one that I absolutely love, not only because I think it's a fun example of, you know, kind of how this can influence a song's writing and kind of create a finished product, but also just because I think it's a lovely song off of a wonderful album by one of my favorite bands. Uh, here's an example. Uh, this is off of Radiohead's 2001 album Amnesiac. Uh, there's a very alien sounding song called Like Spinning Plates. Uh, it, it sounds so odd because uh, it originally started off as a song called I Will, which is very funny because Radiohead eventually actually finished that song and released it on a later album. But enough about that. They were mm-hmm. trying to record this song during this recording session called I Will, and they just couldn't get it to work. They, they were just messing around with it, doing whatever. And at one point, they decided to play it backwards. And they're like, yeah, that's it. That's That's the album I want to hear. <laughs> So they had this uh, this instrumental for this song backwards, and they're like, "This is good. This is good." And so, so Tom York, the lead singer, he created a, a new vocal melody to go over it. But when you when you played the the forward vocal melody over the backwards song, it just didn't quite line up. It just didn't sound right. They didn't mesh together. So what he decided to do instead was to phonetically take the words he wanted to say, reverse them, and then sing it backwards. He was obviously singing forward in real time, but he's singing the backwards result of what he wanted. So when he reversed it, it would sound like forward words. Oh, wow. So I'll say that in a more succinct way. Tom York made up new words that were phonetically the backwards version of his new forward vocals and then reversed the recording, creating lyrics that sounded forward in the final song, but are actually being reversed. (laughs) Uh, a very similar system was used in the tv show twin peaks for the character the man from another place aka the arm he's the guy that's like you know sometimes my arms bend back you know that that gum you like will come back in style that guy that Mm that very similar system yeah but but as 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 we'll point out just like all this discussion we've been having that character of the man from another place from twin peaks he always had subtitles because would you really be able to understand what he was saying backwards if there weren't subtitles there? I don't know. That's a, that's a great point. That's a key point. Now, I love Radiohead and, uh, and I love Tom York's um, uh, vocals. Tom York's vocals almost seem like the perfect vocals to use in an experiment of reversal because, uh, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I, I, there are certain vocalists whose voices I, I think of more as a musical instrument, like a pure instrument, as opposed to a deliverer of actual linguistic information. And I don't mean that as like a slam on them. Um, and, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that I can't understand what they're saying. I mean, sometimes I think of people like um, like Maynard from Tool. You know, it's like I can understand the words he's saying, but I'm not really engaging with what he's saying on a lyrical level, it's more about like the pure sound experience. And I feel like that's, that's what I have with Tom York. Well, if you look at like the uh, kind of the hallmarks of reversed audio and what's really changing, uh, the big key, the thing that we cannot create with forward sounds and can only be created backwards is uh, when anything percussive occurs, it goes and there's like a big mm-hmm. sound at the beginning, and then it trails off very quickly. So when you hear that backwards, especially think about something like the sound of like a drum being played backwards, it's mm. a which which is a very iconic backwards sound. I, I suppose you know I'm the one who edits these episodes. I could just put in a reverse sound there, but no, no, no. I like making it with my mouth instead. <laughs> but um, but but yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. And Tom York has a very um, vowel heavy, very floaty, ethereal singing style. Lot, lot, lots mm-hmm. of oohs and ahs and moaning and kind of like soft sounds. So because of that, forwards and backwards doesn't affect it too much. You know, he's not a yeah. percussive, you know, singer. And the percussion is really what signifies, oh, something's backwards here. So, huh. All right, everybody. That's going to have to be side A 
and <laughs> you're going to have to flip it over for side B. Uh, we, we ended up uh, uh, reaching the point where we're going to have to cut this one in half, but we'll be back in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Seth will con- and I will continue this discussion, and we'll get more into physical media. We're start, we're st- we'll start talking about, we'll essentially enter the labyrinth of vinyl records. In the meantime, I'll just remind everybody that core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Mondays, we do Lister Mail. Wednesdays, we do a short-form Artifact or Monster Effect. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. By the time you're listening to this, I think Joe is actually back. So uh, we should be welcoming Joe back on some episodes in the very near future. Uh, But we recorded these episodes ahead of time. And as always, thanks to Seth Nichols Johnson for not only co-hosting, but of course producing Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And if you want to reach out to any of us, if you have feedback on this episode, you have thoughts about reversed music and so forth, well, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.